Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Today, we go down to Louisville, Kentucky. This is a time when any scientist, almost all scientists, are in some way turning their attention to the issue of COVID-19 and how they can apply their expertise to helping resolve that terrible problem. At Louisville, Kentucky, at the Christina Lee Brown Environome Institute, they are no different. And researchers there who have a large project for looking at environmental health, at the totality of the environment, particularly the urban environment, where someone's health is affected by issues they are not aware of. They have, for example, a huge tree planting endeavor to try to change the nature of the air and just the general well-being of people. But their immediate concern is with COVID-19. We go now to the University of Louisville, to the Institute, where we are going to meet Oni Bhatnagar, Director of the University of Louisville's Christina Lee Brown Environ Institute and Ted Smith, Director of the Center of Healthy Air, Water and Soil, which is part of the Envirome Institute. Welcome to the broadcast. Would you like to tell us about the Institute, how it works and what its mission is? This Institute was created uh, about uh, almost two years ago. Ted and I sort of initiated this uh, new entity within the university of Louisville's academic environment. And the uh, overall mission of this institute is to understand how uh, different aspects of the environment affect human health. And uh, we know from a lot of work done previously that uh, the environment exerts a very important influence on our health and well-being. Uh, we know, or at least we can read the human genome and, but that's the genome is only part of the story. The other missing part is the environment. And so we thought that it was, the time was ripe to be able to delve into the complexities of the environment and how that affects chronic disease, how it affects the health and fitness of an individual and the longevity of an individual. So at the Institute, we have almost 35 faculty, a total number of hundred people studying the influence of the environment and environmental exposures and environmental factors on chronic disease. That's very interesting because we're talking a lot these days about smart cities, the city of the future. And in the course of these discussions, you hear a lot about sensors, a lot about efficiency, a lot about automation, and very little about health and very little about the health content of the smart city. We hear about public transportation, charging stations for electric vehicles, a whole slew of things that we think we want, but health doesn't come into it. Yes, of course. And I think uh, you, you hit upon a very interesting point that when we go uh, worry about the environment, we worry about emissions, uh, we worry about the built environment, whether or not we have enough parks, whether we have rock spaces, all those things are ultimately uh, have health implications. So to us, 
the health uh, idea or this, the word health should be in all conversations and all our decisions should be made through the lens of health. And unless we do that, we're missing a huge part of the picture. And indeed, part of the work in the Enviro Institute is to understand how green spaces and green environments affect neighborhoods. Um, let's bring in Ted because he's sitting patiently there. Uh, Theodore Smith, known as Ted Smith. What is your role, Ted? Well, as uh, as already mentioned, um, you know, we started this venture, uh, formalized it at the University of Louisville just a few years ago, and um, uh, it was uh, it was really a, a kind of a, a great marriage. Uh, I like to think of it in terms of town and gown. I spent six years as uh, the city of Louisville's uh, chief innovation officer, all those smart city things you like to talk about, I used to live with all the time. Um, but the realization that uh, the urbanizing of the world, you know, has come at a great cost. I mean, we've, the rate we've been urbanizing, we've been accumulating chronic disease. And um, you know, I think one of the things that excited me about this enterprise is that we could simultaneously look at human health and uh, urban urbanization and the way we approach cities. And so, you know, my, my, my role in the humble uh, enterprise is really focused on this urban laboratory piece of it. You know, so how can we do our research in uh, community engaged context and uh, really deliver some insights that are that are immediately actionable to, to a community like Louisville? Arnie, how do you measure ambient health and how do you see the deficiencies? Right, so uh, our interest has always been on cardiovascular disease for the reason that it's the leading killer uh, in the United States and elsewhere. And that it's also a good index of general well-being and your fitness uh, in terms of what your blood pressure is doing and what your blood glucose is doing is, is critical to your overall health and well-being. So we think that by using a, a range of uh, outcomes that define somebody's cardiovascular health and fitness could be one a useful measure of uh, documenting the extent of health in a population and its disease risk. Do we have good intercity or, um, yeah, I guess intercity is the word, or intracity data about relative health? I mean, do we live longer in New York City or Louisville or, uh, or some idealistic place out on an island? Not yeah. Manhattan, not that island. <laughs> no, but I mean, there is a geographic distribution of longevity. And, and the sad truth is that in the United States, we have cities in which a 10-mile difference or a five-mile difference could mean about 10 to 15 years of life expectancy. So in one end of Chicago to the other end of Chicago, there's a 30-year life expectancy differential. And so the same thing in Louisville, we have about 11 to 15-year differential from the east end of the city to the west end of the city. So the geography, the place, the area where you live matters. How do you, how do you uh, uh, separate the environmental impact on health from the socioeconomic impact? And I suspect in Chicago, which you quoted, um, you'll find that the very poor people have a much shorter life expectancy than, than those living in lovely flats up on Michigan Avenue. 
Right. So our understanding is that the environment, or particularly the environment as we see it, is a composite of all these features. The socioeconomic uh, indicators are one defining feature of the environment. The other is the place where you live. The other, the other things could be, you know, what uh, sort of uh, houses you live in and what sort of education you have. So all of these are part of the environment. Um, but there are important contributions from one aspect, but they all sort of uh, are integrated in, in, interwoven with each other. Poverty is interwoven with education and disease rate, access to medical care. You know, all these, all these things come together. Ted, uh, Louisville has a very active tree planting program. I mean, probably one of the most active. Would you like to tell us about that and what the impact of trees and the beneficial effect on climate and therefore on human health is? Well, sure. So uh, Arnie was uh, mentioning our Green Heart Project, which is an ambitious uh, longitudinal clinical trial uh, that um, it's actually a drug trial of sorts, except the drug is trees and bushes. And you could go to clinicaltrials.gov where all the other clinical trials are listed and you would see uh, under drug, it says trees. Um, so we are taking very seriously the, uh, the idea that we need to empirically demonstrate what that value is. You know, what, what is the, the basis of the, the connection between exposure to green places and improvement in human health. And so uh, this project uh, involves, you know, planting 10,000 mature trees in uh, essentially four neighborhoods in uh, South Louisville uh, over many years. And it's a controlled trial. So we have an area that's not being planted. And we're very hopeful that we'll be able to shine some light on what are those um, benefits of, of trees and bushes, greenery, nature. Uh, you, you alluded to one, you know, maybe it's, um, you know, related to uh, cooling, you know, so there's a lot of people that are concerned about heat issues in cities. We're very concerned about air pollution. Uh, as a research institute, we have a, a long track record in working in exposure to uh, pollutants. And so, you know, that is one function trees may uh, perform for us, but we're, we're taking a very um, open-eyed approach to this. We're prepared to learn all sorts of things about what, what this nature is bringing to human health. I mean, just to give you a sense of it, we, we have many um, what we call ancillary studies around our core study um, that, that range very wildly uh, from biodiversity, you know, where we're actually seeing, you know, maybe the increase in biodiversity has something to do with the health benefit. And if we don't look at it, we'll, we'll never find it, right? We're looking at noise, we're looking at sleep, we're looking at uh, just a wide range of extra things because we maybe we don't really know what it is or what collection of things it is about uh, trees that actually bring these benefits. But we know there are benefits. The idea of the Green Heart Project is we take a neighborhood and we plant trees in that neighborhood. And, and then we're not changing the socioeconomic status we're not changing the demographics of the people. We're not changing uh, how people are living their lives. All we are changing is that, uh, putting some more trees around them. And so that will give us an indication of what is the effect of greenness independent of all the socioeconomic factors that there might be. So that's why studies like the Green Heart are so important and critical and that we've made a major investment in because we really need to get to the heart of the question, what is it in the environment 
that has a direct effect on health. As a point of interest, what kind of trees are you planting? So we are, are going to plant mostly evergreen trees. And the reason for that is that they are, first of all, they're more resistant to local pests. But second is that they remain green the year round. So for the same tree, you get twice the amount, increase in twice the uh, amount of greenness. So we're optimizing our greenness of the neighborhood so that we're planting mostly evergreen trees like uh, pines and junipers and cedars and so on. Hollies. You're planting these on you're planting these in the streets or you're planting these in special groves scattered around the city. Um, um. Both. So first of all, we have to plant very large trees because if you plant small trees, it'll take 30 years for us to do the steady. So these trees are very big, as uh, maybe like 15, 20, 30 feet high trees. And these trees, we, and we have to plant like eight to 10,000 trees to make a significant difference. We plant these trees uh, around the, the roadways that run through the neighborhood to prevent the flow of air pollution from the streets into people's homes. So that's one strategy. Then the other is in between uh, houses, in people's backyards and front yards, in right of ways. You, like every other scientific organization, have been affected by COVID-19 and have re diverted your, or have diverted your attention to doing something about it. What are you doing? Right, so we didn't need to divert. We thought that, you know, when, uh, when the Ford Motor Company can make ventilators, we as scientists can, you know, change our research interests a bit and address the needs of the society, which, is, which are grave at this moment. So we are uh, looking at trying to understand the spread and the rate of infection, which is both incidence and prevalence of COVID-19 in Jefferson County. And in order to do that, we launched a project called the Co-Immunity Project. And is that the county around Louisville? That's the county around Louisville. And, and it's about 500,000 people, right, Ted? About uh, well, 750,000 people. And we're a merged city-county government, so the county is the city. And then the city has many different sub-areas. So there are areas which are, uh, you know, predominantly people of color live there. Then are areas of people of, of, of you know, of mostly white population. So we have divided the city into four different sub-zones. And we want to do a, a sort of random sample of each of these sub-zones to ensure that we have proportional representation of people of different race, age, or sex, and, uh, and, uh, and race, so that we would know what exactly is the rate of spread of the, of the virus in our community. Now, I understand you also have a program, or part of this program, is looking at wastewater, sewage, and the story, the narrative in the sewage. Uh, people laugh about it, but in fact, uh, sewage is remarkably articulate, isn't it? Yes, and Dr. Smith has taken a great affinity for sewage lately, and, and revels in talking about that, right? Oh, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, I, I must tell you. There's, there's gold in them, there are pipes. So... Um, you know, if you uh, tell us so, we believe it. No, it's. I mean, it's. Uh, <laughs> we're all looking for hope in this pandemic. Am I right? I mean, we absolutely. And no, so, you know, the one silver lining potentially here is that we we may have found um, a, a leading indicator 
of, of infection in, in communities, in buildings. And um, you know, it's, it's not our work alone. There's, a, there's a, a network of hundreds of scientists around the world that are, uh, you know, are uh, working on different parts of this equation. For our part, as Arnie mentioned, we're, you know, we're doing this randomized testing in our city of, uh, in a stratified, robust um, fashion. And it gives us this special opportunity then to see what the signal that we're able to detect out of the wastewater. And we're pulling copies of the virus out of the wastewater, just like you would from a swab in a tube. It's exactly the same test. And so um, what we want to know is how copies found in the wastewater system comport with copies found in randomly tested people above ground. And it's a, it's a one of a kind project um, in the world. And we're very, very excited to really try to figure out what the value is. What is that lead time? What could you do about it? How many points do you measure the sewage at? How, how, where do you sample it? How, how many points do you sample it? That's a great it? question. So we're at, today we're at 16 different locations. And um, I, I don't know if you're an expert at sanitary sewer systems, but I will tell you there's, a, there's kind of a hierarchy. So there are centralized treatment plants where all the pipes go, and then there are places out in the network. And so we've designed this so that we're looking for signals in these different levels of consolidation. So we have a you know, kind of a, a, an evidence trail, if you will. So uh, we're really- It would seem to me that by the time you got to the sewage treatment center that uh, there had been such an agglomeration of the material from so many parts of the city that it would be uh, interesting, but not really useful. Whereas if you found a sewer system coming out of a university, and there was a high rate of infection there, you would know to take a public health action at that university. Mm -hmm. So whenever you want to give up your television career, we would love to have you on the team. That's exactly how we think about it. Um, there's a lot of evidence uh, that's been accumulated at the level of cities. I mean, in fact, one of the most famous um, studies to date has been one done at Yale, which has, has, it's a beautiful graph to look at where they followed infections in the hospital and they compared that to centralized solids at the one wastewater treatment plant for New Haven, Connecticut. And it does track perfectly uh, with, with lead time, but then you, you know, what do you know, what can you do about it, right? They already know that there are a lot of people that are infected or that infection rates are going in a, a, in a certain direction. To be actionable, you need to be out in, in those neighborhoods where you can uh, enact something, more testing, changing of social practices. I mean, the things that we're all familiar with, but in a, in a way that we know with some confidence that we're in the right place. Funny, COVID-19 has been politicized. There are people who have very political views about the science rather than the science speaking for itself. Have you had pushback in the community from what you are doing or against what you are doing? Uh, not, I don't know whether it's pushback. There is been a dialogue of uh, trying to understand what is it that we are doing? Are we simply understanding what is going on? Initially, there was uh, some concern even from our fellow academics about whether the best way use of our resources is to do a random sampling. Should we not be rather using those resources 
to test people in the hospitals or healthcare workers and so on. So when we, so for, that's what we did. So before we launched into a community-wide study, we did a healthcare worker study to make sure that our healthcare workers were safe and what the rates of infection in them was. And we, we will repeat that every two months. So we survey on, in an ongoing fashion, what is a, uh, what are the rates of infection within our healthcare workers and our university hospital? Then the community wanted to know what we would do with the data and why they should participate and that how would we get the results back to them. And we've had established a dialogue of ensuring that we get the results back to them in a timely fashion. We inform them that participating in this study is important uh, for us to know what the true rates of infection are because no other city, as far as we know, has done that in this, in this manner. Um, they usually would just test whoever shows up, but that never tells you what the true rates of infection are. When you create a map of infections in the city derived from an analysis of the sewer or the sewer system, um, you then have to take it to public health officials to act. If there's a problem at the university or a problem in a, a poor area or a problem where you wouldn't expect it in maybe a restaurant area, uh, you have to take it to an accepting political establishment to motivate and to create the public health response you need. Is that all working? I think that's an excellent um, observation. So yes, in order for this to, to um, have any effect in the real world, we need to partner with the people who have uh, you know, the keys to the car, so to speak. Right. And um, we are very fortunate that our City government has been a tremendous partner um, and they, they actually now fund uh, this work uh, that we're doing right now. Um, we meet with them weekly and it's with the health department and we're looking at the data together and, and doing joint problem solving together. And uh, so far, so good. How is Louisville in terms of infections? Is it a high risk city or a medium or low? Wow. So we had uh, initially very low rates of infection. We had a peak in May uh, and that sort of subsided and through maybe through June, it was very good. And end of July, we had very low infection rates, but they have skyrocketed in the last uh, month after the 4th of July. And now we are one of the few cities in the Midwest where the rates have not started decreasing yet. We sort of plateaued to a steady state and we are very concerned that these rates are not going down. Do you do your own testing? Do yes. you have your own laboratory for testing the results of the, the samples you take from the sewage? Right, so that's a good question. So actually we do two types of tests. So in the first test we do is we look at the presence of the virus. And for that, we do a test called the PCR, which is to look at the genetic material of the virus. And that's done from the swabs that you must have seen. And we take that to our lab here. We have a, a biosafety lab, which is one of the 12 um, sort of specialized labs in the country. And we take in the lab and do the testing for the virus. We also test for the antibodies. And the antibodies have earned a bad reputation because of the uh, uncertain validity of the commercially available kits. So we don't use kits. We use our own lab-based uh, approach, which we call ELISA, to do the antibody tests. 
So we have uh, sort of validated, established, and done a lot of these tests, tests in-house, so we don't rely on any commercial facilities for our work. Have you had any extraordinary breakthroughs, any eureka moments when you came rushing out of the lab saying, I've got it, or we've got it, or <laughs> the future can be seen? No, no, no. So, so we, we don't, and that was not, we're not sort of there to, to really create an invention of the sort. We're there to really uh, deepen our understanding. And what was, to me, some of the most remarkable findings were, A, that we found that the rates of infection were actually higher in the, uh, unsurprisingly, higher in the uh, poorer parts of the town. And that initially, the infection came to the town from the uh, people in the more affluent areas of the town, which they had traveled more and they've been around. So when the infection started spreading, it was all localized to very rich communities. And then it moved, migrated from the rich communities to the poor side of the town, and then it stayed there, right? So it shows the vulnerability of the, uh, the, the low uh, or poor resource communities to the, uh, and, and their susceptibility to these uh, higher income communities. You're going to have a very good map of where the infections are, where the hotspots are, where the safer places are. Are you going to overlay that with a socioeconomic map? And will it tell you surprising things, like, for example, that rich people may be more careless or more keen to go to parties or uh, jump on an airplane and go somewhere? Uh, and poor people are more ignorant and maybe don't understand they should wear Mass, whereas rich people they feel invulnerable or politically inspired not to wear a mask. Yes, we think that we might be able to at least get a glimpse of what is happening in the community. We might not be able to make specific claims. For instance, in the last uh, month or so, we have seen an increase in the rate of infection in the young people. So between the ages of, of say, 20 to 40, because of all the partying and the movement and so on. And, and so the young people get infected, the mortality rates don't go up because they don't die from the disease, but they spread it around to other more vulnerable parts of the community. So yes, so the whole uh, sort of community dynamics of how these susceptibilities are migrated over a population is, would be very illuminating to us. Our immigrant communities particularly vulnerable? Is that one of the things you found? Yes, so it's not our study, but yes, that we have found, or the city has found, a very high vulnerability. So in the in the more affluent rates of uh, parts of town, our current rates are 4 to 6% positivity. Whereas if you go to the vulnerable communities, it can go up to 30%. And especially the Hispanic community has been very hard hit, and they are very high levels of infection, uh, about 10 to 15%. Thank you both very much for a fascinating time on this broadcast. That is our show for today. We're all in the battle against COVID-19. Do your part, wear your mask, keep your distance, and we will win. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.